while the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night that's when i'm gonna stand up take my people Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will finish up our look at W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America with the final three chapters, the founding of the public school uh, back towards slavery and the propaganda of history. Um, now, if I were to tell anyone to read like just one part of the book, I think these chapters actually like would suffice for summer summarizing like Du Bois' almost entire argument because he, he takes on the Dunning School directly in the propaganda of history. He focuses on the achievements of Reconstruction governments in founding the public school. And in Back Towards Slavery, he focuses on the counter-revolution. So, um, you know, in a way, these three chapters form the conclusion of the entire book. So overall, my impressions of this book, after having read it uh, once again, I read it several years ago, um, are all very, very positive. I think this is just a wonderful book to, to get into it. It's probably a little long for most people's tastes, and, and you might want to read it selectively, um, but it's a nice one to have on your shelf for, for reference. Uh, the quotes will be useful for researchers um, and people who want to comment on, on Reconstruction in various ways. And I think the interpretation is unique enough that it's, it's worth having a copy of, not just for historical purposes. Um, now, someday I may get the Library of America version of this book and, and retire my current um, free press version. Um, because I know the Library of America version does have some other articles he wrote, maybe on the issue of Reconstruction, and I'm not really familiar with them. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. There's a lot, of course, of Du Bois that hasn't been published by them. Uh, Darkwater, I think, hasn't been published, or at least some, you know, some selections of it have been, but not the whole thing. We don't have a lot of the crisis literature. So the more we get, the better. I'm sure there's enough for another couple of volumes if they wanted to deeper into Du Bois. Um, so anyways, just to let you know where this podcast is going after this, um, I, I don't yet have the Reconstruction Documents book. It takes so long to get anything to Taiwan. And so instead, I'll just move ahead with my overall plan, um, backtracking if necessary in the future. And that would be uh, looking at uh, the works of Richard Wright. Uh, so I'm jumping ahead. The thing is, a lot of the the writer, the black writers from the time of Reconstruction to to the time of like Richard Wright, that that early civil rights generation, I guess. All right, I think actually Wright would be more the end of the end of the pre kind of civil rights movement writers. Like he's writing in the 30s and 40s, so he kind of is a successor to James Bolton Johnson or someone like that, or even Du Bois. Um, so. You know, I guess this is one of Du Bois's latest works, for instance, and and Richard Wright's first book was was written, not published, um, but written in the mid 1930s. So, um, so in a way, uh, but the thing is, those other works like Charles Chestnut, 
uh, Johnson. We already did those guys, right? And we also did like uh, uh, Brown, and you know, he was one of these. Uh, he, we looked at a slave narrative, but also a lot of his writing after the Civil War came in that period. So we've sort of already done those writers. Um, you know, the ones that are collected in the Library of American Anyways. Like the one exception would be Zora Neale Hurston, which I did some of, but I haven't done her novels yet. And that's largely because I'm, I, I guess I just got to dig down good audiobooks because it's all in dialect and it'll be easier to read with an audiobook version. So anyways, that's what we're doing. We're going to go into Richard Wright. And we have five books by Richard Wright that uh, we'll look at, including one short and plus one short nonfiction piece. Now, of course, Wright is famous both for his fiction and nonfiction. Um, short story, like a handful of short stories, but mostly novels and longer pieces of nonfiction, memoirs primarily. So anyways, the ones we're going to look at are Law Today, which was published after he died not published in his lifetime. Uncle Tom's Children, which are sketches and short stories. Uh, Native Son. Uh, then we'll look at uh, Black Boy, which is his memoirs, and then The Outsider. So I guess that's three novels, a collection of shorter works, and Native Son. And then we also, or sorry, in Black Boy, which is the memoirs. We also have um, How Bigger Was Born, which is sort of his own commentary on the writing of Native Son. Uh, so I'll probably just talk about that in the context of Native Son. Um, so we'll start with two episodes on law today, which I, I read just, I cobbled it in one day. It's so good. Um, and I'm really, really excited to get into um, Richard Wright. I'll probably have to read law today one more time. Um, but it's so impactful. It's, it's one of these books here I think you won't forget if you ever read it. So it's not really well read. read. I couldn't find a single YouTube video reviewing it. There's some Goodreads reviews of it, of course, but that's, you know, there's Goodreads reviews of everything. So we'll, we'll see what else I can find about it. There's no Wikipedia entry for this. Uh, but anyways, Richard Wright, interesting life, interesting guy, um, and so angry. I mean, he's, he's the angriest uh, of, the, of these writers, these black writers from the, this period, you know, this post-Civil War period that I think we're going to come across. I don't know. Do they have, does the Library of America have Ellison? Um, I want to say they do, but maybe they don't. It's possible there's a rights issue with, with Ellison. Let me look. So I just looked it up. They don't, apparently. They haven't published Ellison yet. So, um, so after Wright, I think I might consider doing those Zora Neale Hurston novels and stories. And... Oh, and then Baldwin. So, so this is also dependent on shipments, but by the time I get done with the right, I think I should have the Baldwin stories. So I think that's going to come pretty close to finishing our survey of major black writers. So that will be quite an achievement, I, I think, for this podcast. Uh, let me look ahead. Um, there's, of course, like some other writers that, Murray is someone I've been meaning to read. I actually picked him up and then set him down. Um, so he's out there. We got like the, the journalism on civil rights, but that's not really the same thing. We did the Harlem Renaissance books. Um, William Mose Brown we looked at. 
Sorry, I'm going through the list. I think we're we're pretty close. Uh, yeah, Albert Murray's maybe the only one. Um, that oh, African American poetry. That's uh, a later volume. I'm not going to have that one in any case. So. Oh, we got the Frederick Douglass, more Frederick Douglass. So he kind of fits in there. Black writers of the founding era. So now we're, we're kind of not being chronological. So yeah, so it's going to be Wright, maybe Hurston, and then definitely um, Baldwin. And that's going to more or less finish our survey of, of African-American writers. And then we'll jump into uh, kind of a, a revisiting of, of, of women writers from the 20th century. Probably a wealthy, Eudora Welty, um, Carson McCullers, Flannery O'Connor. One of my first volumes of this series I've had was Flannery O'Connor, and I've read it a long time ago and never went back. I think I'm, I'm afraid to talk about <laughs> some of those. Um, don't know quite what to say. But anyways, Will, that's, what, that's what's going ahead. So sorry for dwelling so long on this uh, news stuff, but... Um, just hope you keep listening and, and following along with what I'm, I've been up to in my reading. So let's jump into the final chapters of, of Black Reconstruction. As I said before, founding the public school, chapter 15 of this book, is really an important summation of the achievements because he's, he's kind of already established the counter-revolution of property, which is the macro material interests chapter saying like the material interests were set against reconstruction or set against democracy in general from the beginning with the rise of northern capital replacing like landed wealth aristocratic wealth in the south and so that was sort of the big picture but he wanted to go back to remind you that uh that what black people were after in Reconstruction and what they achieved. So it's, it's both parts of it. Uh, the subtitle of this is How the Freedmen Yearned to Learn and Know, and with the guiding hand of the Freedmen's Bureau in the Northern School Marm, helped establish the public school in the South and taught his own teachers in the New England schools transplanted to the Black South. All right, so there's a lot there, and that kind of sums up more or less the story here. But this is another example of interracial democracy, of Northern-Southern unity, of the importance of federal government powers. I, I think I haven't said enough about that. It's like, but it's because he's not always really focused on the Freedmen's Bureau. But whenever you do, you got to be reminded that he's writing this during the Great Depression when the whole concept of what the role of the state is is changing. And you're having a much more aggressive uh, welfare state being established by the New Deal. And of course, in this context, it's important for Du Bois to to be on the side of the aggressive state. You know, he, he's, it's not just that he's being more Marxist in this time of his life and therefore seeing a role for the state in, you know, creating a positive, you know, situation for the cultivation of freedom. It's that he's also like in the zeitgeist of the time and saying like what something these Dunning school people got wrong is, is they had this idea that the ideal form of government is hands off. So they criticize reconstruction governments for doing things. But in fact, now if we look at this, and this is maybe as important as like the changing racial um, con conceptions of race and, and the growing anti-racism of, you know, that we start to get after the, after, after the Second World War. But the, the very idea that the government should be doing these things, and that's what the Freedmen's Bureau was. It was an arm of the executive branch. It wasn't 
like a state uh, charity agency. It was, you know, an arm of the radical Republicans, you know, funded directly by Congress and, and implementing federal power. One of the first examples of that outside of the military in American history, something that would be, of course, very commonplace after the Great Depression, right? So um, now, of course, he also needs to emphasize the agency of black people in being the leaders in the formation of the, of the public school. Both, uh, he, he talks about their desires to, to establish this, if nothing else, at least as the foundation for future success uh, for the race, um, but also the, the actual work that um, black activists were doing, you know, especially in the military. And he actually goes back to the military as the beginning of the founding of the public school where, you know, people started to learn to read while, you know, serving. Remember, the vast majority of the African-Americans who served in the Union Army were, were serving there as, um, were, were former slaves. Of course, you know, and not like they lived, they, were, they ran away like Frederick Douglass and lived in the North for a while. These were people who were literally just freed and were recruited from contraband camps, put into uniform, and, and you know, and many of them were illiterate. So they, uh, you know, they got their first taste of literacy and education while in the military, which is, of course, very important. He talks a lot about funding here as well, uh, because that's something he's very interested in for whatever reason. It's boring maybe to modern readers, but I think, again, this might be the New Deal environment where this idea is like, you know, the, the essential role of taxation and investment by the central government in, in achieving positive outcomes for, for the population. Um, and, you know, generally Du Bois here wants to stress how revolutionary this is at the time that, yeah, there's maybe some public school systems in, in America, but, you know, there were none in the South until the Reconstruction government said, no, we're going to make sure education is a right for all people. And at the end of the day, he thinks that's, you know, even with the failure of Reconstruction, this success at least prevented uh, a worse outcome. He ends the chapter saying, had it not been for the Negro school and college, the Negro would, to all intents and purposes, have been driven back to slavery. His economic foothold in land and capital was too slight in 10 years of turmoil to affect any defense or stability. His Reconstruction leadership had come from Negroes educated in the North and white politicians, capitalists, and philanthropic teachers. The counter-revolution of 1876 drove most of these save the teachers away. But already, through establishing public schools and public colleges and by organizing the Negro church, the Negro had acquired enough leadership and knowledge to thwart the worst designs of the new slave drivers. They avoided the mistake of trying to meet force by force. They bent to the storm of beating, lynching, and murder and kept their souls in spite of public and private insult of every description. They built the inner culture which, with which the world recognizes in spite of the fact that it, still had, it was still half-strangled and inarticulate. Um, and he actually ends this with a quote from James Weldon Johnson from one of his poems, uh, making a very similar point. Um, it's actually, this could be from Lift Every Voice. It's not from Lift Every Voice and Sing, but the, the feeling of it is very similar, which, of course, has that same idea of endurance through struggle, you know, enduring uh, the, the, the pains of, of suffering and of loss and all that, but enduring through that um, a spirit. And that's kind of what Du Bois is trying to say with the public school allowed. And so he's emphasizing both the creation of the historically black college you know, system, but the, 
just the vast array of public schools. And I think I would, I think most people would agree that this is the most enduring achievement of Reconstruction. I don't think that basic view has changed since Du Bois wrote it down here. Um, it's just the very fact of doing this and paying for it with tax dollars was revolutionary at the time. And, um, and certainly something to, 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 to get behind, I think, um, especially at that time that Du Bois was, was writing. All right, so um, good chapter to read. Um, and then we get to Back Towards Slavery, chapter 16, which is something, like I knew he talked about this. I, I mentioned before a few weeks ago, it's like, where's the Klan in this? It was mentioned in, in, in a few of the, the state-by-state state chapters, but, you know, the violence, the riots, the, the vigilantism, the, the intimidation, all these things that we, uh, of course, now see as such a crucial and central part of, of Reconstruction. There wasn't much on it. And it's not, I don't want to say he was saving it for this chapter. It's just that the theme of this chapter is, uh, to quote him directly, how civil war in the South began again, indeed had never ceased, and how black Prometheus bound to the rock of ages by hate, hurt, and humiliation has his vitals eaten out as they grow, yet lives and fights, end quote. A little dramatic, um, perhaps to use like the, the classical metaphors and, and all that here. But he, I think it's certainly true that civil war continued uh, in a way. Um, and, you know, when we think about like the exhaustion of, of the country for reconstruction, part of it certainly probably was just the, the political drama of it all, like the the political debates and the, the tensions between the sections and the continuation of those tensions. Um, and then just like, you know, there's other things for the country, I suppose, to, to start to think about by the 1870s, like westward migration and all that. But, you know, part of it, more importantly, is just like the violence that was in the newspapers every day, right? Now, in a way, we got to remember that, like, that black journalists made a big point of reminding the nation well into the Jim Crow years, you know, with the flag on New York City, you know, a Negro was lynched today. These kinds of uh, reminders that the violence is, is always going to be, was always there and never left, is an important part of the emergence of the civil rights movement, right? Um, but at the same time, like, most Americans seem to not want to think about these things and not want it to be part of their daily consciousness. They prefer just to sweep it under the under the rug if they could. And so the fatigue of seeing the violence every day, um, you know, is part of why they got behind something like the Compromise of 1876. You know, I'm, I'm talking about mainstream white America, of course. Um, and the, and this did sort of, I mean, the violence did then take, it never went away, that's the important thing. The violence was always there, at least as a threat but it became uh, a little less conspicuous to people because it, it wasn't the centerpiece of the national focus anymore. Um, but lawlessness uh, obviously was a big part of the, of the reaction against, um, re uh, against Reconstruction by the South. And it's also, remember, a big part of black agency, which is this the first book to maybe establish that? It might be, I don't know. I have to look at his footnotes to, to know that for sure. Um, if we look at the, the black historians he focused on, uh, he's got this Taylor's book, uh, The Negro in the Reconstruction of Virginia. Uh, these wrote, he wrote another one on South Carolina. 
I mean, there might be some books here that focus on on um, black organization of, of you know of their own vigilante institutions to protect black communities. That's of course something we we now know in the historiography. Um, there's uh, been a lot of excellent works on this. The best that I know of is called There Was No Peace, uh, The Role of Violence in the Politics of Reconstruction by George Rabble. Um, the current edition is 2007. I think that's its first edition. I must have read it right when it first came out then. Because, uh, you know, I, I think this was on my PhD uh, reading list. Um, but of course, you also have like the congressional hearings about, about vigilante violence. So some of this was obviously pretty well known at the time, but the extent that black people had their own militias and then they were engaged in active self-defense against things like the Klan and the White Leagues. They were called the Union Leagues, of course. Um, Han's book, uh, what the hell is the name of that book again? It is called Stephen Hahn, A Nation Under Our Feet, Black Political Struggles in the Rural South from Slavery to the Great Migration, emphasizes also the formation of the Union Leagues. Um, Wow, he's got a couple of their books I should check out, I think. A Nation Without Borders and Illiberal America. I should just keep Amazon open when I do these podcasts because um, there's a little, you know, referencing this other scholarship is always useful. Um, anyways, um, so the chapter here, Back Towards Slavery, I think does emphasize the counter-revolution uh, of of property, which is something he already established in the previous chapter. And this is just sort of look, explore, exploring the military arm of that. Um, and I think that's fair to say that, you know, the Klan, the White Leagues were the military arm of, of reaction. I mean, they weren't just roving bands of crazy people. They were organized, you know, and directed and, you know, connected to the Democratic Party. Um, you know, there was negotiations. There was like, you know, things like ceasefires and things. And, and he kind of talks about this a little bit, suggesting a more formal military. So I think in this sense, it's fair to say the Civil War did sort of was fought on in other means. But uh, it was still a war with opposing armies, with uh, maybe not the same rules of combat and the same like legitimacy uh, as the the Union Confederate armies had through their own respective governments, but pretty, uh, pretty well-established institutional uh, holders of, of, of political, or, or, you know, people who had political violence or could achieve a political violence. Um, so that's, that's the first half of this chapter. The second half of the chapter gets more into the, 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 the rise of disfranchisement and how Voting rights were stripped away after 1876, and that is what he calls the back towards slavery. Of course, um, he doesn't forget to to spare a few negative words for people like Booker T. Washington for uh, maybe working a little too closely with the White South and helping to establish this this system where black votes weren't going to be uh, defended aggressively by by black leaders. We know his opinion about that from uh, Souls of Black Folk. He, he has a lot to say about that, th those figures, and he's pretty upset about that. Um, obviously, that runs counter to his whole idea of insisting on civil rights as a, as a 
you know, a basic right, responsibility of government towards its people uh, based on the 14th Amendment. The question is, why does the North go along with this? And, and you know, a lot of historiography, especially earlier stuff, might focus on fatigue. Uh, I think Du Bois is going to focus, he focuses a little bit more on racism, of course, or just the in disinterest of the North in defending, you know, these, the, these things. He actually says this directly. Um, they were not disposed to defend suffrage, universal suffrage or democracy. Quote, but it did still believe in intelligence so that the Negro public schools had to be kept open. And at the same time, the private schools, which were furnishing teachers and leaders, were depending not on state aid, but on Northern philanthropy. This meant that a large and influential section of the North had direct contact and knowledge of the educated Negroes. For a long time, they defended the Negro college and normal school from all assaults. Indeed, it was not until the 90s that organized property in the North, uniting with Southern propaganda for Negro industrial education, made an assault upon the Negro college that almost overthrew it. But there is a, that is another story, end quote. Now, I think the focus on schools is interesting because it becomes a cop-out. It becomes an excuse for, for denying them. Because you can say, um, well, they're not ready for self-rule. And if you believe with the Dunning School, you'd say, yeah, the, the, the evidence of reconstruction proves this. So therefore, um, we can take away, strip away political rights. We can strip away legal rights, do all that. We can strip away economic rights and use intimidation, use violence, whatever, to, sub to prevent the worse outcomes, which in their view would be, you know, ha black people having those rights and having political power would be worse than the violence. But the... But you can always say, like, we'll leave the schools. And maybe in 20 years, we'll revisit this question. Maybe once we educate a generation, we can revisit the question. But by then, white supremacy has been enfranchised, right? And is it any surprise to us that race relations get worse at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, right? It's like the nadir of race relations is the early 20th century when you could no longer deny the equality in terms of like economic potential and educational outcomes. You know, it's, the, the debt has to be paid. Like, the rhetorical debt, I wanna say here, sort of has to be paid. You say, oh, we, we put the schools there for 20 years to kick the can down the road, we'll revisit this later. And of course, by then, you have a rising black middle class. You have, a ri you have people like Booker T. Washington and Du Bois and Chestnut and others emerging out of slavery and becoming prominent intellectuals in the nation. You have the, the schools doing great things. You have the establishment of public schools. You have literacy rates rising, all of these things. And then you need like to, you know, the choice is now do we give rights? And of course the answer is gonna be no. So, um, what comes in? Well, you, you, you come in with this scientific racism in the Dunning School and things like this. You emphasize that aspect of it. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I'm quite clear on this, but I'm just trying to suggest it's easy to say, wait and see if the public schools will, will produce something in 20 years and then just say, forget about that, right? Because all these political promises, this is not the only context where we see political promises kicked down the road. Uh, and, and a way to see approach turns into like a, into a do nothing kind of a approach, right? 
anyways, uh, very, very important chapter, uh, trying to explore the, the causes of a reaction and the betrayal of, of economic equality. But here, while in the chapter, the counter-revolution of property, the focus is much more on um, like the economic interests of, of northern capital. Here, it's, it's just more on American racism. American racism ultimately surrendered to, to the thugs and the violence and the, and the vigilantism. Um, but he still remains somewhat optimistic here that, that was, there was within this defeat like kind of a glorious battle, so like a, something dramatic and heroic was taking place here. Um, anyways, the end of this chapter is actually quite beautiful. The unending tragedy of Reconstruction is the utter inability of the American mind to grasp its real significance, its national and worldwide implications. It was vain for Sumner and Stevens to hammer in the ears of people that this problem involved the very foundations of American democracy, both political and economic. We are still too blind and infatuated to conceive of the emancipation of the laboring class and half of the nation as a revolution comparable to the upheavals of France of the past and in Russia, Spain, India, and China today. We were worried in the beginnings of the experiment cost 800 millions of dollars and quite aghast when a debt of 225 millions was involved, including waste and theft. We apparently expected that this social upheaval was going to be accomplished with peace, honesty, and efficiency, and that the planters were going to quietly surrender the right to live on the labor of black folks after 250 years of habitual exploitation, end quote. Wonderful re reminder there to anyone who's like, you know, that social, the reminder being that dramatic social change, when it's necessary, doesn't, just because it's necessary doesn't mean it's going to be easy, or doesn't mean it's going to be peaceful, or doesn't mean it's going to be cheap, right? That you can't have, you can't remake the country, on, you know, on a budget. <laughs> and so many people do. And I think this is also maybe him, him turning the, you know, the camera back on the people during the Great Depression who, who also didn't want to, like, expend the effort necessary to remake the American economy in the, in the era of the Great Depression. So a lot of good stuff there. Then we get the final chapter, the propaganda of history, which I'll be brief about because we've talked about it before in this series, and we actually talked about this before in the podcast. Way back when we did Du Bois, it was one part of this that we read in the previous collection of Du Bois's writing. Uh, this is his takedown of the Dunning School directly, and obviously the propaganda of history is referring to historical memory on black America. His subtitle here is How the Facts of American History have in the last half century been falsified because the nation was ashamed. The South was ashamed because it fought to preserve human slavery. The North was ashamed because it had to call on the black man to save the Union, abolish slavery, and establish democracy, end quote. And that burn at the end I, on both sides saying, like, the North is ashamed because they couldn't win the war without black people uh, is... That's really throwing down the gauntlet here in, in rhetoric because it completely undermines everything about the Dunning School, where, which assumes black people are just incapable of, of achieving anything on their own. Um, now, he starts this chapter by summarizing the points of the Dunning School, which is to point one, blacks were ignorant. Point two, uh, they were lazy, dishonest, and extravagant, leading to excessive spending and corruption. Three, uh, an extension of this, blacks were responsible for bad government during Reconstruction. 
Um, and that's, that's basically it. And now, having read a book like this, and obviously having read new, like the phoner school stuff, you know, like, you, the, the, the Dutch school's interested in about 1% of actually what was going on in Reconstruction. And that 1% may not be wrong. Like, the fact that corruption existed is not wrong. It's just back to the point he just made. You know, like, you wanted, you wanted revolution on the cheap? You're not gonna, you, wanted a, you wanted a revolution without corruption? Like, yeah, if men were angels, maybe. But if men were angels, you wouldn't need a revolution in the first place. So, so what are you talking about? It's like, this is the price of progress. Um, another important thing he does in this book, I think, or in this chapter, is talk about hidden narratives, um, which is, of course, is something we're familiar with a little bit more maybe now than we were at the time, um, where he's, he, he focuses on a lot of um, kind of it, like writing in such a way, historians writing in such a way that their true, the true story is being hidden from the reader, which is not always an intentional lie. Sometimes historians are just blinkered. That, that certainly happens, and we're all blinkered in various ways. But when a whole generation is blinkered, that suggests a, something closer to propaganda. Like he says at one point, yet in this sweeping mechanistic interpretation, the idea that there's a technologically advanced north and an agrarian south. There is no room for the real plot of the story and the real clear mistake and guilt of rebuilding a new slavery of the working class in the midst of fateful experimentation at democracy. For the triumph of sheer moral courage and sacrifice in the abolition crusade and for the hurt and struggle of degraded black millions in their fight for freedom and their attempts to enter democracy, can all this be admitted or half suppressed in a treatise that calls itself scientific? Um, and then he says, like, this is this even self is is hiding a truer, important historical narrative, which is like the actual feeling and experience of being owned or uh, or being an owner, you know, or, you know, the nitty gritty of the experience of being black in America. Which he says we can sort of get at this from certain sources, but that's not read or not really incorporated by the reconstruction historians of, of the time. So then he takes on a couple of the historians, Burgess, Dunning, especially Burgess gets a lot of uh, Du Bois's hate here, rightfully so. Um, but I have to say, the end of this book, the last four pages or so, are just, once again, poetry. He's so, like, the, the end of every one of these chapters, all 17 of these chapters, ends with rhetorical heights. I mean, some of, some really great writing at the end of these um, chapters, even though there's a lot of, parts that maybe aren't as engaging throughout the chapters. The, it always ends on this, this or, orchestral swell of, of, of rhetoric and language and moral clarity, I think. Um, and he acknowledges his own emotion about this topic. And he says, like, yeah, but everyone's emotional. And, you know, my emotion is in fighting for, like, truth. And, and if I make mistakes in doing that, so be it, right? It's kind of like, again, saying like, the, you're worried about corruption when you're having a revolution. It's like that, you, you're missing the forest for the trees here in a way. He says, I write then in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, as a Negro, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes, in their ability to be educated, to do the work of the modern world, and to take their place as equal citizens with the others. 
I cannot for a moment subscribe to that bizarre doctrine of race that makes most men inferior to the few. But two, as a student of science, I want to be fair, objective, and judicial. To let no searing of the memory by intolerable insult and cruelty make me fail to sympathize with human frailties and contradictions. In the eternal paradox of good and evil, but armed and warned by all of this and fortified by a long study of the facts, I stand at the end of this writing, literally aghast at what American historians have done to this field. What is the object of writing the history of Reconstruction? Is it to wipe out the disgrace of a people which fought to make slaves of Negroes? Is it to show that the North had higher motives than freeing black men? Is it to prove that Negroes were black angels? No, it's simply to establish the truth on which right in the future might be built. We shall never have a science of history until we have in our colleges men who regard truth as more important than the defense of the white race and who will not deliberately encourage students to gather thesis material in order to support the prejudice or buttress a lie, end quote. So he's calling for like a more scientific view of history. So he is condemning an entire like academic department, right? And the department he comes out of, he's a historian, right? He has PhDs in history. But I think he's right to be this harsh with that because it's not, again, one historian being blinkered on an issue, but being basically objective and, and, and fair in the reading. It's a whole entire generation of historians consciously excluding, like consciously lying to, to the audience. Um, so anyway, it's really great stuff at the end of this, this book. Now he ends uh, with how he li- likes to do sometimes of scanning out at the world and a world that comes out of the failure of Reconstruction, which is one dominated by industrial capitalism and now facing a big crisis in that world system in the, in the Great Depression. He writes, uh, this is how the book ends. Immediately in Africa, a black back runs red with the blood of the lash. In India, a brown girl is raped. In China, a coolie starves. In Alabama, seven darkies are more than lynched. While in London, the white limbs of a prostitute are hung with jewels and silk. Flames of jealous murder sweep the earth while brains of little children smear the hills. This is education in 1935th year of the, of the Christ. This is modern and exact social science. This is the universe course in history 12. Sit down in the Centacus Academias ad quan ha literat previant salutem in domina semptaparum. Some Latin there. And that just means uh, to whom was reading this, to whom these letters have reached. Peace in the Lord forever. Um, but anyways, that's, that's Black Reconstruction in America for you. Um, an excellent, excellent book. And um, I think still worth reading. I think it's, it's one of those books that, um, that will always have a place in, in the library, I think, if, if just for its, its, historic, its contribution to changing how we think. I know you can get around this book and, and just read the more recent scholarship on Reconstruction, uh, or even check some YouTube videos on this. But, but I think going back and appreciating this book for what it is, as a work of literature and a work of, of history, is, is worth doing. And it's, its moral clarity is, I think, super relevant. Um, and I think the propaganda history is, of course, an important article for any historian to, to read and to, to ponder. So anyways, I think that's going to be it. So the very next episode will be on Lord Today um, by Richard Wright. So I'm, I'm, 
I'm kind of jumping ahead in terms of like topics because we're going from Reconstruction to a book written and set during the Great Depression. But in respect of like the writer's chronology, we're kind of picking up right where we left off because um, Lords Today was written, I, I think maybe 1937 1938 maybe no even earlier 1935 so the same year that this was written Richard Wright was writing um, Law Today a book I don't think Du Bois would be too happy with um, I think he would have his issues with that book but um, you know Richard Wright's background is so different than Du Bois's in, in so many ways so uh, we'll talk a little about that next time so I, I think I'll talk about the first half of Law Law today and then get into the and talk about Richard Wright and what kind of person he is. Now, just to be clear, I've never really read his work. He's, he's just a gap in my education, unfortunately. We all have those. I'm not, uh, not proud of it, but I'm fixing it. So uh, here, we're, here we are. Um, I don't know why I never got to reading him, but uh, you know, especially because he was a communist. It's, it's the kind of thing you'd think I would have read. But, um, but yeah, it's, I was blown away by this book. So, and this is like the book that wasn't even published in his lifetime. It was not until after he died that it was published. I think that's telling about, about what kind of writer he is. So very excited to, to jump into his works more. So anyways, uh, that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, tell me what you think of Black Reconstruction in America. And, um, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. until I die. So I'm gonna stand up, take my